0: Hey everybody! It's that time again. It's time for the With a Bullet podcast. I am Todd Golden with my brother Matt Golden. Matt, what's going on? Um, the same as the last couple of weeks. It's raining outside. It looks like though. Yeah, but it's Easter Sunday, dude. That that is true. Yeah, yep. I did what I always do on Easter. I sat down with my family and watched the Peanuts Easter special where they. the the great Easter bunny and the great pumpkin and, um, and pig pen decided to go on an Easter adventure. (laughs) Okay. I don't remember that one. (laughs) I don't think there is a peanuts Easter special. I don't know why. Yeah. I don't think there is. I I think that would be in their wheelhouse. There, there was the Peter rabbit one that I think Rankin and Bass did, but, um i don't recall a peanuts one or if there is one it's not very famous so right yeah i mean they did christmas and halloween yeah take that jesus (laughs) you were risen and charles schultz can't even get off his dead ass and write a tv special about it (laughs) so anyway this week's choice is my choice and we're going with uh, a little further in the calendar than we typically would but Uh, given that it's April, well, it's April 12th where you are, it's actually the 13th where I'm recording, but um, this is from April 20th, 1985, and I wanted to do this countdown for two reasons. One, I think the last three countdowns we've had, one by my choice, two by yours, kind of delved into cheese territory, and I wanted to go with a countdown that we're familiar with, most of you listening will be familiar with, and just kind of, it's kind of the sweet spot of i guess 80s top 40 that was one reason and the second reason is i know exactly what i was doing this weekend in 1985 i was in eighth grade and on the friday before this countdown came out which would have been the 19th um i did a lock-in at a ymca in uh wauwatosa where we lived at the time wauwatosa wisconsin and um it wasn't the first time i stayed up all night but it was probably the first time i did in like a communal setting and i remember hearing the music pumped over the speakers if anybody's ever done a lock-in you know uh, especially one at like a place like the y you know you basically play basketball you swim um Mm -hmm. you know at that age anyway and you hang out and they had music pumping over the speakers for um, well all of it really and i remember all these songs distinctly because they were just playing top 40 radio and Uh, Some of these songs I got to like because I participated in that uh, lock in. So um, and then the next day um, we went to a Brewers game um, and after a Saturday afternoon game uh, against the Texas Rangers. And I'm a huge baseball fan, for those of you who don't know. And normally I would love to go to a baseball game. But I remember fighting my dad about going to a baseball game and he made me go. It was like a (laughs) one o'clock start know, it was a terrible game. The Brewers got two hit by fucking Dickie Knowles of all people. But um, and I remember just being absolutely dead on my feet, tired um, at this uh, baseball game because I'd stayed up all night at the lock in the night before. I don't know why my dad made me do that. I'm not exactly sure what the story was with that. I don't remember, but I doubt he remembers either. But uh-huh. so, so that was what I was doing on this date in 1985. Uh, what were you up to? Um well I, I assume that I went to the baseball game too. Um didn't go to the lock in. I'm not exactly sure what I was doing. I was in first grade at the time, so you're probably watching GoBots or something. That's <laughs> a pretty strong possibility of that. Yeah. So <laughs> um anyway, I apologize some audio jumped in there for some reason for a second, but let's get ready. Let's get started with a countdown, and you'll start, Matt, with a pretty iconic song at number 40, Walking on Sunshine by Katrina and the Waves. Right, and Katrina and the Waves were a British and American group. Um, The Waves were all British. Katrina, whose real name was Katrina Laskanich, was an army brat who um, decided to settle in the UK after her dad was stationed there. And this song was written by one of the Waves, Kimberly Rue. Um, who was also a former member of the Soft Boys, who were kind of a cult band and um, kind of had an interesting day job before he turned to rock. He was an archaeologist, and he specialized in digging up um, old Anglo-Saxon ruins. Um, But apparently he got bored with that and decided to become a rock musician. But this is very upbeat um has almost a motown holland dozier holland feel to it um can almost imagine the supremes singing it back in the day and it has we've mentioned 80s sax in here but this has canned 80s horns and i don't know if it was just the way they recorded the horns or they were kind of getting into early sampling technology at the time but basically just sounds fake and it's kind of all over this song and um hmm. i've never really thought of it that way i guess i'd have to listen to it again yeah and it, it, i mean that sound comes up a lot on the songs on this chart actually so yeah, i'm it's... thinking like phil collins the studio has horns definitely the, uh, yeah similar. Susudio definitely has it but it's um This has been used in tons of ads to the point where it's almost a cliche and I think it was actually used as the theme song for the Kansas City Royals when they won the World Series. I could be wrong about that. Like which which one? The 85 World Series? 85, yeah. Okay, I thought you meant like a couple because, you know, I mean, the St. Louis Blues just used Gloria when they won the Stanley Cup, so you never know. Yeah, that's true. That's true, but... Um, because it's used in tons of ads and it's still played on the radio a lot, um reportedly earns over a million dollars a year in royalties. So, so I believe it's also been used in a lot of movie trailers too. Right. Like not not so much recently, but like if you came out with a Disney movie in the nineties where uh all of a sudden the wacky dog could play basketball. Did 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 it did it did, 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 did. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, but it's a good song I liked it back then and I still like it even though it's become a bit of a cliche and Katrina and the Waves had a song that barely cracked into the top 40 later on in 85 that I had never heard before Um, ah, God I wish I should have looked it up what the title is I feel like an idiot for not looking that up but it's actually a great power pop song Mm -hmm. and they have another song um, that the Bengals covered Oh, uh, going down to Liverpool? Yeah, which is yeah. a bad song either. Yeah. So they had some artistic viability. Yeah, yep. And um, the Soft Boys, who I mentioned earlier, they, I, they're also a really great band, too. Um, kind of in the late 70s, early 80s, kind of post-punk, but pretty good band. I'm going to look up the Katrina and the Wave song. I will update this as we go. (laughs) Okay. Who that was, because that's going to drive me crazy. Because it's, 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 uh, I think it made it to like 38 in the top 40, like after um, Walking on Sunshine. Walking on Sunshine was a big summer song of 85. Yep. Oh, it was called Do You Want Crying. Oh. It hit 37 in the late summer of 85, Hmm. according to Wikipedia. So, Yeah, go listen to that song. That's a great song. It really is. It shocked me how good it was. Okay. Um... Do it now. (laughs) Stop with the podcast and go listen. All right. But um, probably check it out later. But for now, let's move on to 39, which is Rick Springfield with Celebrate Youth. This has to be high on the list of worst song titles of all time. I mean, it sounds like... (laughs) something that like your eighth grade music teacher would tell you to sing like at a recital or something like that.
1: Not that I would know
0: because I, I wasn't in the choir or anything like that, but, but this and a song that will come later are battling for that title on this countdown. Um, as far as Rick Springfield was concerned, this is where his popular fortunes really started to go downhill. He really was kind of the king of the early eighties in terms of, you know, uh, I wouldn't say it's power pop, but kind of pop rock. I don't know if there's a distinction there between the two. Some of his songs are kind of power popish, but, um, but he was on the wane. I think he was kind of self-conscious about being taken seriously. Cause he was still viewed as a pretty boy. He was an actor on general hospital, even though he'd been a musician well back into the seventies, he had a top 40 hit in like 72, um, that a lot of people don't, don't realize, but, um, Anyway, he made a very conscious effort to make this very synth laden, very much of its time, and um, you know, as it often happens for artists who have kind of passed their expiration date, they don't know they've passed their expiration date, and people just didn't really want to necessarily listen to Rick Springfield that much anymore. So, um, this got to twenty six, and the album it was on uh, kind of flopped, and and from there, that point forward, Rick Springfield kind of eventually made his way to uh, oldies land so mm-hmm. but i like rick springfield's earlier 80s stuff i know he's sometimes he's used as a punchline i don't think that's really fair he had a lot of catchy songs and yeah um, yeah you know a lot of songs that you look back on that were pretty good so i'll give my props mm-hmm. a band i will not give any props to later on in the countdown spoiler alert is also at number 38 this week for one of yours and that is one lonely night by Ario speedwagon yeah i didn't i'm skipping this one i didn't really remember this song at all and it's really not that great this is the one song you know i was going to say in the opening and i forgot to say it that there aren't going to be many songs that you hear us saying well i don't remember this song or um you know i've never heard this song there's going to be very very few oh yeah on this countdown that people you know not just us but that people haven't heard so right including the next song what including the next song. And the next song is um, 37, Howard Jones with Things Can Only Get Better. Um, this was his second biggest U.S. hit. Um, uh, no One Is to Blame, A Year Later was his biggest one. But um, I will always associate this song with our 1985 vacation that we took to Washington, D.C. from Milwaukee, and then we went to visit our cousins in uh, Virginia. They were, they're, my uncle was in the uh, Air Force and was stationed at Langley air force base down in, uh, down in Hampton roads. But so I remember hearing this song like 90 times on that vacation as we drove East. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is right at the beginning of its chart. So it makes sense. It was, it hung around, you know, in the summer months, early summer months when we went on that trip. So, um, but a pretty good song. I'd say this is probably my favorite Howard Jones song to the degree I've ever really thought about having a favorite Howard Jones song, but, um, it's pretty good, definitely of its period. Very synth-oriented. We're definitely deep into the synth era of the '80s, and uh, <clears throat> not too bad. Yeah, I I don't mind Howard Jones. It, actually, a lot of his songs kind of run run together for me. So, um, yeah. So I mean, I I mean, once I heard it, I knew it automatically. But I, I mean, this one, and no one is to blame. And I think he had a couple su- hits in like the late '80s. They just kind of yeah, run he'd... together for me, but not, not bad. Yeah. yeah, yeah, He's all right. Yeah. Next up for you, number thirty-six, the bird by the time. Right, and this is kind of a James Brown jam updated for the Minneapolis sound. Um, a lot of the time stuff was kind of like that, and this is actually a live recording. It was recorded. Um, at First Avenue in Minneapolis and it was featured in the movie Purple Rain. And um, there wasn't really a video for this, but I went back and watched the clip from Purple Rain and um, the timer playing the song and everybody at First Avenue is going nuts. And then they go back to the dressing room and the Revolution who are um, obviously like having to follow up more as they are just kind of moping around and Dr. Fink's kind of shaking his head in disgust. So, <laughs> I, I forget was Dr. Fink um cuz I'm thinking of the Dr. Fink from the Raspberry Beret video which um Dr. Fink was the drummer, right? No, no, he was the keyboard player. He was... Okay, who the hell who the hell was the drummer with the Revolution? Um Bobby Z. Okay, that's never mind that. Yeah. I was getting <laughs> one of my favorite moments in that like raspberry beret and i've never heard this that i shouldn't be talking about raspberry berets i don't even think it's on this countdown but um it the the video has a different version that i've never heard in any other any other form Mm -hmm. where there's like an intro to it and my favorite thing is where they freeze frame bobby z like pointing at the camera from his drum kit (laughs) very 80s me but um (laughs) but anyway um well, like a lot of, I mean, since I mentioned it, it's kind of takeoff on James Brown, it's also kind of almost a dance craze song. And the dance is the bird, and the dance is just like spreading your arms out like wings and squawking like Morris Day. He he does this like throughout the song where he just goes oh, ah! it's kind of a squawk. Yeah, but um, yep. They had that in Oak Tree, which was another dance attempt. So. Yeah, and he also um, name-checks the the slogan for Thunderbird wine quite a bit, which is, what's the word, Thunderbird? So, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> I always preferred the bird to Oak Tree. I mean, of course, uh, um, you know, neither one of them was their biggest hit, but Oak Tree gets repetitive for me. I don't mind the bird there. Uh, yeah. But it's it's I mean it's a good song. I mean most of it, it it was co-written by Prince who wrote it under a su- pseudonym. But it's kind of similar sound to like the more dancey Prince of the Revolution stuff and all that stuff's usually great. So, but yeah. anyway, let's move to thirty-five, which is David Lee Roth with "Just a Gigolo, I ain't got nobody. Yep, and uh, I think we should take this opportunity to pay tribute to uh, David Lee Roth's videos, which David Lee Roth's music was very questionable. I mean, it was it was kind of like you had to be there, like him doing California Girls and this, both of which were covers, which were on an EP, which was on uh, um, Can't Stand the Heat, I think it was, but, um, you know, they weren't great songs, but Van Halen was so popular, and and all that but they they just you know he kind of rode that wave to some degree but the videos that went with him were really funny and um and some of them they were most of them were directed by Pete Angeles who did a few of their Van Halen videos as well um including Hot for Teacher which is probably the only Van Halen video from 1984 that had a plot to it to some degree I mean most of the other ones they were just screwing around on stage or something Uh but um David Lee Roth took his concepts and kind of created characters and wacky situations in the videos. I mean, they're very broad comedy, um, and kind of created this sort of subculture around his songs via his videos. I think his videos were more popular than his songs, whatever. Oh, yeah, so, definitely. And he carried on basically through his whole solo career, making, you know, kind of half-assed songs, but, um, but pretty good videos. I mean, Angelus did not direct the Yankee Rose video, which came about a year later. Uh, that it has a really funny introduction to it.
1: Doing um, a bottle of any, but he's in a
0: donut to go. Yeah, but he's in it. He plays the guy who's like a sleazy pimp with a uh, a couple bags oh, on okay, his arms. And,
1: okay, okay.
0: Yeah, that's Pete Angelus. He kind of created the concept of these videos. So, um, to me, that's what's memorable. Memorable about David Lee Ross. Solo career is the videos. So, this one, this one had its moments. I mean, David Lee Roth is basically acting his way through it and gets into some wacky situations and all that. So, it was, it was funny. It was funny at the time. It's probably funny now. So, <laughs> uh, so I'll give him, I'll give him props for kind of riding the medium at a time when, uh, you know, it, I don't remember call or many videos that had comedy in them. Before David Lee Roth, I'm sure there were some. But, I mean, mostly like um, Weird Al is what I remember for comedy. But yeah, you're right about but that. But that's but that's comedy going going in. I mean, the video itself being because you know anyway, it was it was very popular and um, probably the reason it's on the chart. Uh-huh. So and it's going to go higher on the chart. It's actually went up eight slots this huh. week. So that brings us to number 34, which is. Fresh by Cool in the Gang. And this is pretty typical of this era of Cool in the Gang. It's kind of light synth funk and has a really repetitive chorus. But, um, <laughs> what I went back and watched the video, and the video for this is hilarious. It's, um, has a Cinderella theme and it's very 80s though. And, um, Cool in the gang are the princes, and they're all decked out in like satin and sequins. Um, kind of stuff that like Rick James would wear. And most of the guys have jerry curls too. And the evil stepsisters look like Divine. And the fairy godmothers of Marilyn Monroe look alike. And Cinderella kind of gets carried off in a weird, like, S and M carriage, and um It's hauled by dudes that are in, like, horse harnesses and are, like, half naked. (laughs) And um, when they get into the ball, she immediately starts twerking for James J.T. Taylor. And um, then the rest of it is just cool in the gang, trying to find her, and every door they go to, um, basically everybody looks like either elvira or divine until they find her but um that's because they knew she was fresh fresh. yeah exciting exactly exactly but um this was i mean this was probably this was their most successful era in terms of like chart possessions and sales so i mean this was kind of almost their peak they were actually even though it was kind of like this was kind of the tail end of their hit making period, but well, they they had they had hits for a little while, yet longer. I mean it's I bet it would surprise a lot of people how many hits Cool and the Gang had in the eighties. And almost all of them sound they're either ballads or funk jams like this. There's very little deviation of what they right, do. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. And I mean this yeah, was this... this was there was this was a little bit longer. I mean, the version that I listened to for this um, was a little bit longer than I remember the single being. Um, this was probably like six minutes long or something, and it just kept kept on going. Yeah, with they the did. Fresh, fresh. She's so fresh. She's so fresh. Part. Yeah, for the yeah, dance floor. Yeah, twelve. And it was a number one dance yeah. hit too. And that's that's probably why. So, I know I was shaking my ass to it in '85. <laughs> But it seemed like Reagan's Reagan's America had an unquenchable thirst for cool in the gang for some reason. Yeah, yeah, and yet, and yet, if you would talk to anybody, like if you gave like your top ten bands, I bet very few people would name them like in their top ten. Right. Ever. Yeah. They were just kind of. They were always there though. I th- there's a version of tonight that has it's like the one that they recorded for specifically recorded for like uh, rock mm-hmm. and roll radio. It has, a, like, a really good guitar solo on it, actually. I, I think I know which one you're talking it's about. Incredible. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. it's pretty good. Let's see, but let's move on to 33, and this is one of the ones on the chart that I didn't remember. Um, Vox Humana by Kenny Loggins. Well, guess what? Other than me mentioning that it's right there with Celebrate Youth <laughs> as one of the worst song titles ever, you're not going to learn anything more about it because it's Okay, first okay. So, that brings us to number 32 too late for goodbyes by julian Let's see and julian was the first child of a Beatle to pursue a music career um george's son danny paul's son james ringo's son zach and julian's half-brother sean all made their own attempts but none of them came close to julian's success on the charts um actually you might make a case for Zach because at one point he was a member of Oasis. But anyway, um, this was, this was his second hit single of a lot came out before this one, was also like a top 10 single. And I think he was probably the most successful out of the Beatles kids because he leaned the most into his dad's image and sound I mean, he basically sounds exactly like John, but it's only one version of his John. It's like the double fantasy version of his his dad. You, you couldn't really imagine him singing, like, Your Blues or anything off the Plastic Ono Band <laughs> album. Yeah. But, um, but this was produced by Phil Ramone, um, who's worked with a ton of people, and he's probably best known for producing Billy Joel and Paul Simon back in the seventies. And I'm assuming Julian Lennon was able to get him based on name recognition, but anyway um, kind of has a ska beat. Um, It's kind of kind of light, almost not really adult contemporary, but kind of close to that direction. And um, it's, has a video which is it's just Julian and the session guys playing the song and for some reason there's a dancer that pops up in a corner every once in a while and there's no real explanation of why the dancer's there but Julian starts singing at the guy anyway and do you know who directed this video Todd? Sam Peckinpah Sam Peckinpah the last thing he did right. before he died which is kind of amazing that he went from the wild bunch to that <laughs> well he had a lot of if you know anything about Sam Peckinpah he had a lot of demons and uh, could be extremely difficult to work with and I think he was trying to make a comeback uh, one of his many comebacks that he ended up having to have in his career and uh, decided to get into music videos he also shot a he did yes remember right yeah. and, and um, you wouldn't know it because ne- neither one of those videos are in the peck and paw style. Like nobody's getting shot in slow motion. It, it, it would be funny if he like a lot of heavy. squibs and had like um, had Julian Lennon just like covered in blood or like having him like I arguing would have great with a if they disembodied just... head or something like that. <laughs> oh man, yeah, they just basically redid Bring Me the Head of Valfredo Garcia. <laughs> yeah, so, that movie is unbelievable in terms of how uh it's great in its way it's also extremely unsettling in its way too yeah but yeah yep uh, out of the out of any video director ever sam peckinpah it's cool that he jumped into that medium though it's too bad some of the other like if sergio leone he was still alive at this point if he had done a video uh-huh. that would have been cool or uh you know any of the classic directors so yeah i'm a big peckinpah fan so it's cool that he uh, right. jumped in on and that. One, one note that I... One other note that I have for this is the guitar on this is played by a guy who appeared in our first episode, Martin Briley. So, kind of... Yeah, from yeah. Uh, Salt so In My Tears. Kind of bringing it back to yep. our first episode there. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I feel bad for Julian Lennon. You mentioned how he sounds exactly like John. I think he was conscious of that and... Um you know what are you going to do that's what it right. sound like and obviously I'm sure the record companies wanted him to sound like that too and um you know he i think one of the reasons why he didn't jump into like you know edgy material like that i don't think that's who he was he didn't have a good relationship with he wanted a good relationship i shouldn't say he didn't have a good relationship with with his dad his dad didn't have a good relationship yeah with yeah john was always kind of a and, dick to um... you know yeah, yeah he was and uh, so it's. I've always, I've always felt bad for Julian Lennon, but you know, um, certainly he had his career out of it. He had a, one of an all-time great song written to him about his career. Right. So hey, yep. Jude. So you know, no complaints. I right. would think from okay. him. So let's see, but let's move on here to 31, which is um, Survivor with High on You. This is one of my all-time best fucked up lyrics that i thought uh it was and it's not the very first line in the in the song the first real line in the song is uh there you stood that'll teach you to look so good and feel so right but he breaks it at he goes there you stood that'll teach you to look so good and feel so right that's how he sings it so there's a pause Uh in the actual verse it's like he split the verse into He basically split it into two verses where, you know, it would normally be one. So I would have been, what, 13 at that time? And I never got that concept. So what I thought he said was, uh, is there you stood, battle teacher. To me, it sounds like ballerina. (laughs) There you stood, battle teacher. I was like, what the fuck is a battle (laughs) teacher? I was like, well, maybe it's something that made up for the song. But then the song is about falling in love, so... That doesn't make any sense at all. But at that time, I was like, well, some lyrics right. don't make sense, yeah. whatever. So we've talked about Survivor before. They keep popping up on these countdowns. They were like the white cool in the game. They were on the chart seemingly all the time. And um, this is another vacation of 85 song that was played a lot. So um I've always liked it. I, I don't mind that era of Survivor. You know, I'm not going to, like, go out and buy any albums. But, um, you know, if it comes up on the radio, I'm not going to, like, instinctively turn it off either so um so there you go there you stood <laughs> teacher so but that leads us into i believe i get the you crack at the yes. uh, long distance dedication yes. and i'm not going to go very deep on the chart for this one i'm going to go to number 49 which would be smugglers Ooh. blues by glenn fry and um don't say anything because i've I, I don't want you to spoiler alert anything, not that I know anything, but um, the reason I bring this one up is it cracks me up that somehow Glenn Fry got pulled into the Miami Vice <laughs> universe, which um, Miami Vice by this point, it had had its first season in 84, 85. And it was a, it was a sensation. And it was, you know, I remember in my eighth grade class, like people were like, Holy crap, man, you got to watch Miami Vice. That shit is cool. And while the fashion of Miami Vice is kind of overrated its influence, I mean, it's not like you saw people walking around literally dressed like Sonny, uh, Sonny and Crockett, but um, but the music influence was pretty big. And somehow Glenn Fry got hooked into that. I never really, I looked, tried to look up how he, you know, became part of the Miami Vice kind of vibe. Uh, I think they probably just picked out one of his songs. And then he recorded Smuggler's Blues, which wasn't, Necessarily recorded specifically for Miami Vice, but I think he kind of knew, and uh, they of course they picked up on it. And they actually named a, a episode after it, and he was on the show for a little while. So there was this whole weird vibe about Glenn fry and I think he had a little cachet because the Eagles, you know, did their share of drugs in the seventies and all that, and probably well into the eighties. So it was like, oh yeah, let's get the guy from the Eagles who <laughs> did coke all the time and all that. I, mean, I doubt that's what they were really thinking, but. But I'm, but for people at home, we're like, oh yeah, okay. There's probably some credit. He probably knows a little bit about smugglers and that kind of thing, which it maybe he did. But, um, but there's a few things that crack me up about Smugglers Blues. First of all, the song itself isn't really that bad. I've never minded it, um, and I listened to it and watched the video today for it, and it, it holds up. It's fine. I mean, it's it's a story song about selling drugs, basically. Um, I. and watched the video and I was expecting the worst you know because I remember when the video was out I actually really liked that video because it also tells a story of Glenn Fry having a bad drug deal his partner gets shot he sets up his girlfriend to launder the money she gets arrested he gets arrested Uh, she basically takes the fall for it he walks away and then at the end of the video he gets plugged by the guy that plugged his partner at the beginning of the video so it has a dark ending to it and I was expecting it to be super cheesy and there are elements of it that are cheesy, but it actually wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Um, it's the most well-lit drug video I've ever seen because it still has all the 80s tropes and Glenn Fry is literally singing the song in it. So as he's acting out Smuggler's Blues, he's singing Smuggler's Blues, which um, sometimes it works, sometimes it's pretty funny. But um, And the actual drug kingpin himself is second only to Tony Montana as the like most overwrought drug <laughs> dealer of all time. I mean, he's kicking down doors. He's pissed off. That <laughs> he can't find Glenn Fry. And then he finally at the end of the video dresses up like mm-hmm. a cop and kills him. So, uh, but there was this whole Glenn Fry vibe. And then this led to Glenn Fry's brief acting career, which was itself funny. And it led to one of the cheesier HBO movies. It wasn't an, made for HBO movie, but it was on HBO all the time. And it was Let's Get Harry, which was a movie that came out about a year after all of this. And it was very much a Reagan Cold War, drug war era um, movie where uh, Glenn Fry and some of his buddies, Robert Duvall was in it. Um, I think Gary Busey was in it. And the dude from Sixteen Candles was in it, the one who seduced uh, Molly Ringwald. And they went down to Columbia or something like that and broke one of their buddies out of like a Colombian uh, rebel thing that Rebel, uh, Colombian rebels who were dealing drugs and they kidnapped him. It was very 80s, very right wing, very Delta Force ish. And it was on HBO all the time. And Glenn Fry was in it. So Glenn Fry has Smuggler's Blues to thank him for that role and to give us a real piece of 80s cheese because that movie is. I haven't seen it recently but I've been looking back on it. I I have Do you remember that it, movie? Actually. I I do I do remember it. But Oh, how did you miss that? It was on HBO like all huh. the time back then. I mean, and it was definitely in the mode of um, you know, we're America, we're going to do whatever we We're going to walk into another country and uh it was kind of like the South American version of Rando. Huh. It was really what it was. Yeah, good. You should seek it out because it's probably yeah, up I, I, I to it standards. Be. <laughs> so, but anyway, so I dedicate this to Glenn Fry's Miami Vice. <laughs> okay, uh, rush with stardom. Why not? So, but that brings us to another bit of phenomena from that time, and that's uh, number thirty is Axel F by Harold Faltermeyer from the Beverly Hills soundtrack. Beverly, Beverly Hills yep. Cop.
1: Soundtrack, I should say. <thinking>
0: yep. This song was that, that lock in I was at. I think it got played oh, oh, yeah, a thousand times. yeah, and it, it, was, oh, it was heading up the charts at this point. Um, eventually made it up to number three. So, um, but anyway, you mentioned this was from Beverly Hills Cop and it was, um, named after Eddie Murphy's character, Axel Foley, um, Axel F. And Faltermeyer was a German film composer and he was initially discovered by Giorgio Moroder, um, who's kind of famous disco producer, famous like synth pop producer. And the two of them worked on the scores for Midnight Express and American Gigolo. And, um, Meyer struck out on his own and did Re- Beverly Hills cop and um let's see the score for this is very similar or this song is very similar to his score for Fletch which yeah his score for Fletch is I was I was gonna mention that if you didn't I mean it's over it's overbearing in Fletch Fletch is a great movie it's funny as hell with his score oh is absolutely yeah definitely in that movie. But um, but that was released a month after this, so it was kind of like in the same vein. But um, went back and watched the video for this, which there is there was. I was surprised that there was a video for this. But it's black and white, and Faltermeyer is a spy, and he's hacking into a computer to get clips from Beverly Hills Cop, and this is kind of mixed with with clips of Faltermeyer playing a sense and. Um, a female spy dancing. So, (laughs) yeah. Yep, I remember that video. They didn't show it on MTV very often, but I do remember seeing it. um, But, yeah, I mean, kind of memorable 80s instrumental. I mean, there weren't really that many hit instrumentals in the 80s, but this kind of stood out. And Beverly Hills Cop was a huge hit. I haven't seen it in years, but... Probably, I'm assuming it would probably still stand up. I mean, have you seen it recently? Um, I, You know what? I've actually seen Beverly Hills Cop 2 more than I've ever seen Beverly Hills Cop 1. So I think I saw one of them recently, but I think it was Beverly Hills Cop 2, the one with okay. like, Brigitte Nielsen yeah. and all that in it. So uh, did it hold up? <laughs> no, not really. I mean, some of Eddie Murphy's comedy is funny but you know but some of the characters are pretty you know like uh judge reinhold's character is you know by then the buddy movie cop thing well i mean really it's like a it's basically in a way it's like a comedic remake of or a different kind of yeah yeah 48 (laughs) hours was a comedy but 48 hours was pretty dark uh beverly hills cop is a comedy and it's not dark that's probably the the only difference between those two movies i mean 48 hours was pretty brutal but it. it but murphy was like yeah comic relief yeah. in it i mean so but I, I i would be surprised if it held up very well other than just right. what was intended to be comedy see so. but let's move on here to 29 which is billy ocean was suddenly this is a skip for me um it's it's a ballad, it's there, not very interesting, so I'm skipping it. So that leads us to a song I would be I'm kinda of surprised is on the countdown at all, much less this high. Twenty-eight is radioactive Let's see, and I'm by skipping this. This is the second time I've skipped a Jimmy Page Ooh. super group. So <laughs> You hate Led I, I like Led Zeppelin. I just don't like um post Led Zeppelin Jimmy Page, I guess radioactive <laughs> radioactive and you're skipping bad company that's like true Rogers and i'm, I'm also i'm also skipping um <laughs> chris slade who was in um uh, man for man's earth band and acdc too so <laughs> just a hater but let's move on to 27 which is forever man by eric clapton Well, we're on a, quite a roll of skips. I'm skipping this because 80s Clapton is pretty okay. boring. So that leads us to number 26. Everybody wants to rule the Let's world. Let's see. That's and You've mentioned the Washington, D.C. trip a couple times. And I do have like a distinct memory of hearing this song along the trip. Um, yep. We're just leaving Chicago, kind of like heading out of the country. I just remember like staring out of the fields and this song was like the intro to this song was playing kind of like the guitars at the kind of like tinkling at the beginning of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of like kinda yeah, like that yeah. ethereal opening. So to that's this song. always yeah. kind of stuck out with me for this song, but um, this is their only single that features or at least the only single that I know of that features Kurt Smith on lead vocals, um, Roland Orzabal sang most of their songs. But um, he actually, Orzobal actually wrote the song and it was added to the album, the songs for the big chair at the last minute. Orzabal um, didn't really like the song and um, actually had a, a different title when he wrote it. It was called um, Everybody Wants to Go to War. Um but he did record I mean they did decide to add it on there and it's kind of become their signature song or one of their signature songs and kind of an enduring like eighties hit and it's kind of just dealing with um everybody's desire for power. I mean that's the theme to the song. And um it was actually since I mentioned that it originally had a different title. It was actually re-recorded by the band as "Everybody Wants to Run the World" for Sport Aid, which was which sport was aid. a I series of ten k runs held around the world to raise money for Live Aid, and that version went to the top ten in the UK and Ireland, but. Um, Wanna talk about the video a little bit. It's half of it's the band performing it, and the other half is Kurt Smith kind of going through an adventure in the California desert in an old convertible. And there's gliders flying overhead. He stops at the cafe from Pee-Wee's Big Adventure that had the dinosaur statues. And he's in an abandoned gas station and there's guys in like 60s suit doing Motown dances and guys on dirt bikes. And, um, it's basically, I mean, just kind of a desert road trip video. Um, a little bit different from what was on MTV at the time. And, um, this ended up going to number one, Um, in June kind of stayed there for two weeks and also number one on the dance chart, surprisingly. So. Yeah, that is surprising. I didn't really get tears for fears at the time and I didn't like them, but I really don't know why. And now I kind of do like their songs, including this one, but talk about misinterpreting the song. I would have graduated quote unquote from eighth grade, you know, a few weeks after this. And this is one of those songs, like, they bring up, like, at the end of your graduation, it's like, hey, you're going out in the world, maybe you can rule it. So they, like, play that at, like, you know. Like, you could go, everybody wants to rule the world. It's like, yeah, you're going out into the world. It's like, yeah, okay. Right. So everybody settle down. Let's see. But so, let's move on to 25, which is Mick Jagger with Just Another Night. Yeah, this was his first... Uh, You know, it was a big deal that he went solo in the mid 80s and nearly broke up the Rolling Stones, actually. But, um, you know, Mick Jagger was always kind of the within the Rolling Stones. There's always been this push and pull over the years between um, his desire to maintain relevance and to kind of hop on whatever the trend of the moment was. I wouldn't say he's trendy, but um, he it, it was always born out of a desire to make sure that they didn't end up being dinosaurs or you know sound like one distinct style whereas Keith Richards always wanted the band rooted in the blues and guitar based and Mick always you know he had even with within the stones he had some detours into disco and reggae and uh, some of them work some of them don't and this was definitely a turn into 80s you know contemporary synth pop and it's not a terrible song but it's you know Um, and it was a decent hit it made it up in the top uh it made it into the top 10 i think and um but you know but people didn't you know whether mick jagger liked it or not people kind of put him in a box too and so this probably wasn't necessarily what people were looking for from mick jagger and his solo career never really took off i mean he put out another album two years later that had a couple Top 40 songs on it, but nothing that went deep into the top 40. And, um, you know, just never really clicked. You know, we, we had him on that rock countdown, um, you know, where he made it high on that chart. But that song, it's not like people remember it. So the weird thing about this song is, is that Ray Dawn Chong is in the video. And within the last year, she claims that uh, Mick Jagger had sex with her huh. when she was 15 in the 1970s. So this would have been later later on. So if they did, obviously it didn't screw up their relationship or anything like that. So um, the song itself is um, he was actually Mick Jagger was actually sued for ripping off a reggae song that had the same title. And uh, he did win in court um, a few years later. But um, it's not a bad song, but it's not like you're going to it's not the one you're going to remember when when, Uh you know, Mick Jagger goes to his grave either. So, uh, so yeah, but. Anyway, moving on, number 24 is New Attitude by Patty LaBelle. Yeah, and I'm skipping this one. Never really been a fan of this one. It's been used in a lot of ads and don't really like it. So Okay. <laughs> um, but let's move on to 23, which is Ario Speedwagon with I Can't Fight This Feeling. Uh, this song is terrible. This is where we should, we've been talking. Our sister has been wanting to get in countdowns and i should have invited her because this would have been a perfect one for her to do uh-huh. this would have been a perfect song for us to argue about it. i remember arguing about it at the time and, uh, she was a big fan of the song i hated it continue to hate it and kind of like um don't stop believing My journey this song has also kind of her the 2000s consciousness as well um i forget which movie which disney movie it was in but it became a big deal um, so it's sort of become a standard, which sort of sucks because this song is just so, yeah, uh, that's just, it was from the beginning. It was just such a commercially, it was a song that was basically recorded for the purpose of, um, being on the radio. And it's like, there's no artistic merit to it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, now the video is funny because it goes through the cycle of life, um, from birth to death in terms of having, uh, um, uh, being in love with somebody. So um, now that part of it is really funny, but the old man who represents the, the guy in the video, um, I, I will say this for Kevin Cronin, the lead singer of Mario Speedway, and he looked a lot better basically at the age that they were portraying the old man in that video to be than the old man looks. So <laughs> so he looked right, but um, this song uh, is just it's just no. <laughs> just no. I, I can't stand this song. Never have. Right. Yeah, I've, I've never really been a fan of it either. So It just sounds like like if I had a bedroom
1: full of teddy bears, this is what I would play for <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I don't know.
0: I don't know a better way to describe it yeah, without being inappropriate. So anyway, let's go to it much better song and that is number 22 which is rock and roll girls by john fogerty and this was from his comeback album center field um he took a nine-year break in music due to various legal disputes with his record label um they shelved one of his albums in the 70s and he basically just quit for a while um but he was back and um had a big hit with old man down the road before this and this was center field and rock and rolls girls came out around the same time and um let's see this is pretty straightforward rock kind of has a driving beat pretty similar to center field but less corny doesn't have like the baseball theme to it (laughs) right and it was inspired by the 60s instrumental um, wild weekend by the rebels and i went back and listened to it and they are very similar um right down to the sax solo which is 80 sax yep and it was performed by forwardy himself which he is Sax on it yes he did yeah, he played it because he didn't want to pay a sax right he he actually played all the instruments on the center field album including sax so yeah but um also i mean it also it's similar to that song but it also has a very ccr feel to it it's pretty catchy um i like it a lot probably yeah. probably my favorite song on this chart actually so really i wouldn't
1: go that far but it's. it's <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. See, but let's move on to 21, which is Some Things Are Better Left Unsaid by Hall & Oates. This isn't going to be a skip, but it's going to be close to a skip, because this was kind of disappointing. This is where it started to go south for Hall & Oates, too. Um, This is on the Big Bam Boom album, which did produce Out of Touch, which was a big hit, but that was their last big hit. And after that, they put out Method of Modern Love, which sucks. And then this song, which also sucks. And um, though they were pretty ubiquitous in 85, they later had a hit with uh, uh, with uh, David Ruffin and, uh, and Eddie Kendricks from The Temptations later on in 85. What nobody really knew is that Hall & Oates was basically their, their dominance of the 80s was almost over. And uh, this song didn't get much higher on the chart. Um, and it just wasn't very good. And I think people were just kind of tired of Hall Oats at that point. I love Hall & loved them then, loved them now. And, and I know I was tired of Hall Oats by then. Um, because songs like this and Method of Modern Love just weren't part of what made them sound good. They were, they were sort of trying to branch out, I guess, but it just wasn't very good. So, um, this is where the rot began as far as the charts anyway. And, uh, um, but they had a great run in the early 80s. They were probably the band. Um, if you wanted to define a band from, you know, 80 to 85, uh, they were probably it. So, right. uh, yep. so can't hack the run they had. It was huge. But mm-hmm. that leads us to number 20 for you. Uh, Don't Come Around Here No More by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Let's see. And this was co-written and produced by Dave Stewart from the Eurythmics. And, it was inspired by a one night stand or something that happened on a one night stand that he had with Stevie Nicks. Um, He hooked up with Stevie Nicks and it was shortly after she broke up with Joe Walsh from the Eagles. And while they were like hooking up, those are from lookers there. Yeah. Yeah, I know. (laughs) But while they were hooking up, they were kind of interrupted by Walsh knocking on the door And Stevie came downstairs and yelled at him, don't come, don't come around here no more and slammed the door on him. And that like inspired the whole song. And he told Petty who was friends with Stevie Nicks and they recorded stop dragging my heart around. And actually Petty's wife inspired the title of edge of 17. So, um, but that's how that came together. And It's best known for its Alice in Wonderland-inspired video, um, which is kind of like an iconic 80s video. It was directed by Jeff Stein, who also did the Cars You Might Think video. And um, Dave Stewart's in the video. He's on top of a mushroom smoking a hookah, and he gives the mushroom to Alice, which sends her to the party where Tom Petty's the Mad Hatter. And um, the actress who played Alice ended up hooking up with Stan Lynch from the Heartbreakers, and they ended up dating a few years after that. And one of the other women in the video, um, there's women in the video kind of dressed up like checkered bodysuits, ended up hooking up with um, Heartbreakers bass player Howie Epstein. So... It kind of ended up being a matchmaker for the bands, but surprisingly, this was this video was also one of the reasons why Tipper Gore started the PMRC because apparently um, Ella Tipper's daughter saw the video and was freaked out about the cake eating scene at the end. So you know, I don't (laughs) remember this video is iconic, but I don't remember being on MTV that much. Maybe I just missed it. I, I. I don't do you remember it being on? It, it was on there. I mean it was it was on there probably about as much as you got lucky was, but yeah, I mean I do remember seeing it. Yeah. Yep. But it's yeah, it's like Tom Petty almost never fought off that image that he had in the video, which of the Matt Hattery. He kind of played up on that too to some degree. But Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And uh Matt, I believe. That also leads us to your long-distance dedication. What do you got for us this week? Well, at number 53, we have Wham! with Careless Whisper. Oh, that's not what I anticipated you doing this week. Right. And the song was a huge hit, um, former number one, and it was heading down the charts. And this was actually the week that it dropped out of the top 40. But I don't really want to talk about the song or Wham! What I do want to talk about is a video titled Sexy Sax Man Careless Whisper Saxophone Prank. And this came out a few years ago. And the video is basically a shirtless guy with a mullet wig and sunglasses playing the very 80s sax solo from Careless Whisper in public and wreaking havoc. Um, he's going to supermarkets, jumping up on the counters, playing the song... Um, Humping tables at Taco Bell while he's playing the song, Um, going through the drive-thru and In-N-Out playing the song, Um, jumping on tables and rolling around the floor at a mall food court while playing the song, Um, getting kicked out of stores and running back inside while playing the song, Um, interrupting college lectures, running onto a football field, and so on all while playing the sax solo over and over and over. It's one of my favorite internet videos, and it's always made me laugh. So I figured everybody else could laugh at it too. I mean, with the situation that's going on, everybody needs a good laugh. So everybody just look up Sexy Sax Man Careless whisper Saxophone <laughs> Prank. It's pretty funny. <laughs> um, they better be careful on how they look that up, because you could look that up. Like type a wrong letter or something like that, and you could be in big trouble, yeah, yeah, I guess so <laughs> um, <laughs> it, what it reminds me of uh speaking of hearing wham over and over again uh, when I had an apartment at one of my first jobs in Columbus, Indiana, we lived next door to a dude who broke up with with his girlfriend, and he played uh, one more try by George Michael. Literally for three days on end. That's all we heard from the other apartment. Oh, God. It was <laughs> unbelievable. So, but you actually unintentionally created a nice segue to the next song. Right. Yeah. Because the next song is Wham. Um, at number 19, we have Wham with Everything She Wants. <clears throat> now, I was 13 years old when this came out, and there is nothing in anyone's 13 year old sensibilities that would make you want to like this song. So at the time I would have been like, oh, geez, here's another stupid wham song that sucks. Um, Looking back on it, this song is actually pretty cool. And, um, you know, it's a club song, like a dance song, which um, although I was an accomplished break dancer at the time, um, (laughs) this wouldn't have been the kind of dancing I would have been into. So, um, but it's actually a pretty cool song. And the, and the lyrics are about him just, uh, being pissed off because his girlfriend he, his perception is his girlfriend just doesn't appreciate him enough so um but big hit for wham big iconic song and it was and and uh, careless whisper may have been on the outs but this was on the ups it was up 11 spots so um wham could do no wrong in this part of 85 and um, as we mentioned i think when we did our 86 countdown um you know there were Burning on fire, there from late '84 through uh, the middle of '86. So, oh yeah, definitely part of, part of their run. So, another artist who was on fire at that time is at 18, and that would be somebody by Brian Adams. Let's see, and this is Adams in kind of rock mode. Pretty good, straightforward rock song, catchy chorus. Um, if I had to pick a favorite Brian Adams song, it'd probably be this. Um, and there were actually two videos for this. Um, one has Brian performing the song of the club, which is the one that I remember, but there's another one where he's walking through a train yard and it kind of switched back, switches back and forth between him and his somebody having a bad time with her shitty boyfriend. And eventually it gets to the point where Brian gets out of the train yard, and he ends up outside of B.C. Place in Vancouver. And the somebody and her shitty boyfriend are inside watching um, the B.C. Lions taking on, take on, like, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders or somebody. Maybe the Ottawa Rough Riders, which are, the Rough Riders is spelled different. But anyway, guess who walks on the field? It's Brian Adams. Oh. I was going to say Don Cherry. (laughs) But he gets on the field. He gets the crowd to do the wave. um, He's on the jumbotron. And surprisingly, the somebody does not actually run onto the field, which is kind of amazing. Uh, Maybe she was just disgusted by the fact that um, Brian would um, disparage the CFL or something. But... um, Good for Brian Adams for defying video cliches <laughs> yeah I I don't know that I remember that one I'd have to look it up but I seem to remember I, I don't know that I necessarily remember either 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 video to be honest but the reckless this was on the reckless album the reckless period of Brian Adams um, I would say Brian Adams was one of my favorite artists at that time honestly mm-hmm. uh, I remember me and my friends were gonna try to he played. Um, we're from Milwaukee and Milwaukee has Summerfest in the summertime, which is a huge music festival. And at the time, that was the last year the main stage was on the north end of the grounds and it was pretty easy to get into. Um, I think the year after that is when they opened an amphitheater on site. But um Brian Adams was one of the main stage um performers during the peak of his powers, and we were we were planning on going down there to try to sneak in, but we never did it. So um but that's how high Brian Adams was in our esteem at the time. And, and, and I, by then I was into rock and roll and stuff like that. So he was bringing the goods up until, you know, he ran into Robin hood and all that. So. Yeah. 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 Most of the songs from that period are pretty good. Most of the songs from cuts like a knife are pretty good. So not all of them, but, but most of them. So. Yeah. He was, he was bringing it in this era. Yeah. Yeah. He was. Yeah. But let's move on to 17, and this is one of the ones that I don't remember. Um, Foreigner with That Was Yesterday. That was yesterday. That's how it went. <laughs> but I'm skipping it, because there's not really much more that's interesting about it. Okay. That leads us to a cool song. Number 16 is Smooth Operator by Chardé. Let's See, it is a cool song, but I had Charday on the 86 countdown, and a lot of what I would say about her from that count, countdown, I would say here. So it's a skip for that. Um, it, it's a good song, but I mean. I, really good song. Yeah, but I just needed something to skip. So. Fine. Okay. But let's move on to 15, which is Tina Marie with Lover Girl. Tina Marie, if you didn't know already, is the Ivory Queen of soul and there is this weird aura around tina marie that i've never quite understood um but she is really esteemed in r&b and funk circles Uh and i've never really delved into tina marie um i had one or two of her songs on like this funk compilation i had from from earlier on in her career like right at the turn of the 80s but she was super respected in, in those circles to the point where um when my family and I went on a trip to Los Angeles a couple of years ago, um, we drove down near Venice Beach. Um, we were actually killing time before we got on our plane back home. And on one of the buildings, like full size, all the way up and down its walls, it like a three-story building, was a giant mural of Tina Marie. And it was dedicated to the Ivory Queen of Soul. So she's huh. like a very big deal in that community. And, and she was very talented. She was a multi-instrumentalist and uh, won three Grammys. And this song was easily her biggest hit. It went to number four. Um, and she really didn't do have any hits after that. But she was big in the clubs, uh, big in the dance scene and all that. So, um, very respected artist. She passed away about ten years ago, but um, you know, I've never really delved in. Um, that's not necessarily my thing, but uh, for people who who do have that as their thing, she's uh considered to be really cool. So yeah. good good for her for having a big hit. So yeah that leads us to number 14 along comes a woman by chicago let's see and this is kind of a landmark for chicago because it is the last chicago single to feature peter satara on lead vocals yep and it's pretty typical of david foster era chicago but it's also a little bit more rock than um some of the other singles that they put out and um Chicago had an actual horn section, but it sounds like they used the same can eighties horns as everybody else on this. Um, there was kind of a struggle in the band at the time that the um horn players felt that they were being left out, and I think which they were basically yeah and i I think one of them actually learned how to play bass, so Peter Satara could be just a front man at the time. Which is kind of funny. But anyway, um, this has a video that was inspired by both Indiana Jones and Casablanca. And Peter Satara is both Harrison Ford and Humphrey Bogart in the video. And it starts out kind of as Indiana Jones. Um, Peter Satara finds something in the jungle and brings it back to, like, a sleazy guy who um, gives him the money where he can buy a bar that's similar to um, Rick's Cafe and Casablanca. And the guys from Chicago play the big band at the cafe. And at the end, when the Nos- Nazis bust in, I was half expecting Satira to say something like, Nazis, I hate these guys. But it, it never happened, unfortunately. But it's... i I actually like that video that's a cool video for especially for a relatively uncool band like chicago yeah it was i mean they had halfway decent videos around that time um the stay the night video was pretty good yeah was, uh, stay the night was clever yeah i suppose but yeah i actually really i, I have to admit i really like this song yeah it's it's not bad it's not bad but It's up-tempo. It seemed like Chicago was going in the right direction, but... But they definitely um, didn't. <laughs> no, they did not. This was their last... Neither, this neither, is, neither you did you know, Peter Cetera. So. No, they both went in a very bad direction, and uh, this is probably the last Chicago song that I would consider to be enjoyable. Right, yeah, I'd, I'd probably consider that the same, but... Except Look, look Away, that song rules. <laughs> not really. But let's move on to 13, and this was a big one, Um, ah, Material Girl by Madonna. Yeah, Madonna kind of regrets the title of this song. I don't think she regrets the song itself, but um, the music press and the entertainment press being what they were, of course, this song comes out and then automatically she becomes the Material Girl, which she still called to this day even though she's like 90 years old she's not really 90 but mm-hmm. um you know so she regrets the fact that it was a label put on her um as a result of the song title i think the song itself is uh, obviously iconic it was a huge hit um this came off the like a virgin album which madonna had broken before that um with her self-titled album but this is the one that made her one of the biggest stars in the 80s and she really owned in 1985 i mean she had her own hits. She had hits off of Vision Quest. She had hits off of um, Desperately Seeking Susan. Um, I She was absolutely dominant in 1985 in terms of uh, chart hits. And uh, I love this song at the time. Still love it. It's still one of my favorite Madonna songs. And um, the video was part of it, too, is, you know, Madonna does try to have it both ways. When I read about her Thoughts on the legacy of this song and the video, which was, um, you know, basically she's acting like Marilyn Monroe in it, um, uh, you know, and the video is based on that. It's like she wants to be in trade in the tropes of diamonds are a girl's best friend, which is what it was inspired by, and yet doesn't want to be considered like Marilyn Monroe like. It's like she's trying to walk a tightrope there. And, you know, I don't think anybody really thinks of that anyway, but the video actually traded on the opposite theme of the song where at the end, Keith Carradine who plays like a studio hand or, or, uh, you know, a, uh, a grip or something like that. I don't know, Mm -hmm. but he's like the poor down in his luck guy and he wins over Madonna because he's genuine. Yeah. So she's always said that was the counterpoint to the song, but you know, the song is obviously about, uh, you know, unapologetically wanting material things. So, um, but it's a great pop song. It also sounds very Motown-ish, which it was intended to. And it's produced by Nile Rodgers, who was good at producing songs like that. And, um, you know, deservingly iconic and a uh, big song. And uh, really, this and Like a Virgin, which came before it as a single, ushered in the year of Madonna. Yeah. So. And I dressed up like Madonna all the time. I mean, I was <laughs> caught up in it, too. Yeah while i was doing break so. right yeah so this leads me to one i'm jealous that you got because you're probably gonna grip on it but <laughs> number 12 was probably my favorite song at the time some like it hot by the power station and power station were a super group um they featured robert palmer on vocals <laughs> they were super <laughs> um andy and john taylor um who were the bass player and guitarist from Duran Duran and Duran Duran were on hiatus at the time. Um, and Tony Thompson and Bernard Edwards from Chic. Um, Thompson was the drummer and Edwards was the bass player for Chic, but here he was kind of in the background as a producer. And the group kind of came together when the Taylors and the guys from Chic um, informally, Um, got together to record a single for their mutual friend um, who was model and famous groupie um, B.B. Buell who's probably best known now for being Liv Tyler's mom but everybody was impressed with what they came up with for Buell so they came up with an idea to do a full album and the Taylors and Thompson would be backing up a different singer on each track and Mick Jagger and Billy Idol were some of the ideas that were floated around. But the first guy that they actually approached was Robert Palmer. And to give Palmer a feel for what they were going for, they played him the track that they did with Buell, which was a cover of T Rex's Get It On. And yes. Palmer almost immediately said, Hey, I can do that better. Why don't I re record that? And eventually it became, hey, I already did two songs. Why don't we do the whole album together? So he just ended up singing the whole thing. And this was the first single from that album. And sounds like a mashup of almost everything the group was into. There's funk. There's kind of a Led Zeppelin-inspired drum sound. Um, in the chorus, they kind of go for a bossa nova feel to it. And there's... The canned '80s horn section all over it. Basically, everything in the kitchen sink. Um, the band went and promoted the single on SNL, and it ultimately became the only live performance of the band with Palmer. Um, the Taylors and Thompson wanted to go on tour, but Palmer. This was like his first. He had had hits before this, but it was. This was his first huge hit. And he wanted to record a solo album right away to cash in on it. And he just decided to go off and do his solo album. And the rest of the guys went their own direction. It wasn't really an acrimonious split. But it was kind of portrayed in the music press at the time that it was. And the guys from the power station even made contributions to the Riptide album, which was what followed this, and kind of copied the sound from this. But ultimately, they replaced him with um, Michael DeBar, who was kind of um, a mercenary lead vocalist. Um, He was in a few bands before this, and um, he actually played the lead singer of the fake punk band from WKRP in Cincinnati so yeah but now but go ahead. definitely sounds very mid-80s um not really too much of a fan of it but it's okay i guess yeah you better come correct because words can probably not describe how much i loved power station and to this day still kind of love power station probably more on emotion and nostalgia than anything else um it definitely is you're right it's definitely of its time but they had a cool sound and um the drums were almighty tony thompson was um they they had that they they outdid phil collins when it came to that big drum beat 80s oh sound. yeah yeah um and the guitars in it less so in some like it hot but definitely in get it on uh to my 13 year old ears was just what an orgasm would have been before I was able to even have them. (laughs) I mean, those were those songs, especially get it on, uh, which came out in the summer of 85. Those were, I absolutely loved those songs. And to this day, even though I had a T-Rex phase, um, and kind of went through a period of like, um, oh yeah, power station, that song's cool. But you know, this, this is, you know, much more grounded and, and all that, and then I kind of went back to like, eh, I kind of like the power station version better. Just because I, I, I think we actually so, had an argument over this once, we did have an argument about it, and I will stand my ground. And I, on I that. definitely prefer I, I the T Rex version, so you know why Cause you suck. <laughs> That's why. But I had this album, and there's some good songs on it outside of the hits, too. They did a pretty good cover, I didn't know it was a cover when I heard it. Of Harvest for the World by the Isley Brothers and Um, I mean it's a thrown together super group type of thing. So, you know, it's not like it's an all time great album or anything, but it's it has its charms and um before Robert Palmer became you know, it, in a way he got exactly what he wanted because Riptide was a big hit and um all that. But then he kind of almost created a caricature of himself that he never escaped
1: any Yeah, exactly. So
0: with his solo career. So this was probably when it was a little fresher. And uh, if you wanted to get on my good side in 85, uh, you would have put this song on or get it Yo. on. So, See, but let's move on to number 11 here, which is Don Henley with All She Wants To Do Is Dance. Okay. Skip. Fuck Don Henley. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was a big hit, and it's actually not that terrible of a song. Uh, I just skipped something. So um Number 10 is Missing You by Diana Ross. Let's see, and this was written as a tribute to Marvin Gaye who died a year before this and it's a tribute, but it's also almost an unrequited love song. Um, Let's see, Ross didn't actually have a relationship with Gaye at any point. Marvin did have relationships with other female singers at Motown, but Not Diana. Um, They put out a duet album in the 70s. (laughs) There's probably a good reason for that, but I'll let you go on. They put out a duet album in the 70s, and there was a lot of tension in the sessions, mainly because Marvin kept on showing up late, and he insisted on smoking weed in the studios. And eventually they decided to record the vocals in different studios, but um, they remained friends after that. And, um, the song was actually co-written by Lionel Richie, who was also a Motown artist, but as far as I know, he didn't really interact with Gay that much, but, um, this ended up becoming her last top 10 hit and the video features Ross kind of singing the song at an empty soundstage and it's mixed with, um, A clip of gay uh, making a guest appearance at one of her shows shortly before his death. And um, you can tell it's kind of spontaneous because he's wearing a track suit. So. (laughs) Yeah, but he he wore that a lot in the 80s. He was a big. Yeah, that's true. But but it's. I mean, it's not that great. I mean, it's let, let, let me put it this way: I'm, I don't want to spoiler alert the remainder of the countdown, but this loses the battle of Marvin Gaye tributes. Definitely, it, it definitely it. does. And um, not to spoil it later, but yeah, it's definitely the the lesser of the two. But this still um, made it to number one on the R and B charts, and this was actually its peak on the pop chart. So, but um, yeah, big hit, I guess. So... yeah, not very memorable though. That's I mean, true. It just isn't. But let's move on to number nine, which is Murray Head with "One Night at Bangkok." This song is extremely memorable. However. It is. And, it is. Um, for those who don't know, um, it's from the play, or a rare song from a play in that era, "Chess," written by Tim Rice and Benny and Bjorn from ABBA. And the play actually had—I've never seen it, but it had a cold war espionage element to it that um, I've read the description of what it is. And it just sounds like a mess. Although a lot of people who have seen it says it's it's not bad, but um, Murray head does this and um, he sort of raps the, the, the song. I wouldn't, it's not like hip hop style, but it's spoken word is it's between rap and spoken word, but, and the lyrics if you've never seen chess make absolutely no sense if you've seen chess it actually is basically repeating plot points from the from the show so i've never seen chess so things talking about uh, reclining buddha and uh, uh lady boys and all that in bangkok you know sounds random as hell but i guess it does have an actual context within the within the play but how this became a hit i have no idea this is one of those songs that just pops out of nowhere like i'm trying to figure out why record executive would be like man we need to really release a single from this yeah um murray Head, who had done jesus christ superstar had not been on the charts for years um and it was a hit in england long before it was a hit in america and so that's how it kind of crossed over here but how it became a hit over there in the first place is anyone's guess Um, but it's one of those wonderful accidents it's become um an iconic kind of almost you know a song that's a little bit of a punchline from the 80s but even then in the moment it was considered to be cheesy and but like good cheesy like think of right said fred or something like that like this song is cheesy but i still kind of like almost, almost it almost like rock me amadeus um, too yeah but i think it's had more staying power than rock me amadeus has and um you know I, I I like this song. I have it on like my playlists and stuff like that. So it actually did get banned by Thailand too because of disrespect towards Thai people and the uh, and the reclining Buddha reference. They didn't like that. So they they also make um, like references but it, to like sex trade in Bangkok I think, too. Oh yeah, yeah. And lady and lady boys having sex with the lady boys, which is a thing yeah. in Bangkok. So um, you know it's all over the place and the lyrics. Now, to my ears in 1984, 85, when this was out, I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. And it had an air of mystery to it, to my ears anyway, because it has a pan flute (laughs) solo in it, which was unusual. Um, There's vaguely Thai sound to it. You know, there's a vaguely Asian feel to the song, song, although it's really, you know, almost like, going into an Asian restaurant and hearing music. I mean, it's not like real Asian music, but, um, it's, it's of its time and it's cool. Mm-hmm. And I dig it. So, um, also of its time is our number eight song is don't you forget about me by see. Lines. And this is a future number one hit. Um, it was written for the breakfast club soundtrack, um, by Keith Forsey and Steve Schiff, who can uh, who composed the score for the film. Um, Forzi was an English producer who primarily worked in Germany. And he collaborated a lot with Giorgio Moroder, who we mentioned earlier. And the two of them won an Oscar a couple of years before this for writing um, Flashdance, What a Feeling. And he was also the producer for um, Billy Idol at the time. And Idol was the first person they actually approached to record this song, and he ended up turning it down, and they also approached um, Brian Ferry, Corey Hart, and Cy Cernan from The Fix before they approached Simple Minds, and they all turned it down. And Simple Minds weren't really wild about recording it either because um, it wasn't one of their songs, but Ultimately, their label and um, Jim Kerr from Simple Minds' girlfriend, Chrissy Hind, um, convinced them to do it. And it was recorded in a single afternoon. And um, Kerr ended up ad-libbing the la 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 outro to this. And they didn't really think anything of it. They didn't think it was going to be hit at all. Um They didn't think the movie was going to be a hit. They just thought it was going to disappear off the face of the earth. Um, But it became a number one hit and kind of broke the band, but the band still wasn't really a fan of it. And um, they intentionally left the song off of their next album and didn't really play it live at any other shows for a few years after this either. either. So they Still don't like it, right? To this day, yeah, right? but um, but yeah, I mean, they just wanted to perform their own songs and they were just kind of forced to record this, so they didn't like it. But um, big, big across the yeah. board hit, and the Breakfast Club, even though I'm not really a fan of the Breakfast Club, is kind of endured too, so. I don't know why I hate the Breakfast Club. I didn't even like it back then and I was right at that age where it was targeted at. I just never got I never I always I never of all the John Hughes movies that became big, that was the one that never grabbed me at all. Right. Yeah, I mean it's I mean I guess the message of it is just like different cliques from high school like coming together at once, but I mean who cares really? <laughs> I just thought the characters were annoying and cliche. The characters are cliched, you know, even back then, I actually felt sorry for some of the adults in these <laughs> movies. Cause John Hughes um, was when he wasn't presenting adult, when the movies weren't overtly humorous, that's when he really, that's when his adults were funny movies, but when he was actually trying to be serious and he had several movies that were like this, you know, it's almost like, you know, you know, it's like, eh, grow up a little bit, you know, they were always way over the top, you know, like teachers were bad and stuff like that. It's just even back then, I didn't really right. like it. Well, so the one the one I don't but I'll tell you what good was the custodian, too. He came off as like the cool adult. <laughs> yeah, but he always had a character like that. That was like the cool adult that that identifies with the kids so he could play him off of the dickhead adult that, you know, was the target of their ire and all that I, it that became a cliche in his movies too to some degree but but like i was saying i graduated from eighth grade that year and if you don't think this song was going to be played at some graduations um oh know, yeah definitely it was i'll, I'll put it it's, so let's move on to seven which is animation. i think the second week in a row we've had them um, yes the animation <laughs> era of with, with um, obsession Well, if I had to pick a song that typified the sound of 1985, um, this song would be it. It's all the cliches, maybe without the, well, no, I guess it does have the horns that you're talking about a little bit. Um, A little bit. They're kind of, it's hard to tell whether those are horns or synths, honestly, but um, synthesizer driven pop hit. um, It's kind of got that one synthesizer sound that was popular at the time that was real echoey um, during the, um, during like the bridge up to the chorus, that boo like um, that sounded like, um, God, what song had that song? Anyway, um, pretty much if you had a synthesizer sound that was typified by the mid-80s, this song had it. Um, it was actually a cover. And another reference that I didn't think we'd have twice in this podcast, uh, the original was recorded by Holly huh. Knight and Michael DeBarr, um, and appeared in the movie A Night in Heaven in 1983. And this was a, remake of that so um, you know somehow I associate this song with Wrestlemania it must have been one of the wrestlers theme songs or something so I, I could which I that would see like, been this, part of the, pop like culture the synth stems and this kind of being like intro music to a wrestler but <laughs> yeah so apart from that not, not, a, not a terribly memorable song you know but it's it was an of it's yeah. time song so Totally opposite from that on the musical spectrum is number six, I'm on right, fire and by Bruce Spaced. This song sticks out like a sore thumb on this chart. It doesn't sound like anything else on the chart. Um, it's very sparse, um, even compared to like the rest of the singles on Born in the USA. Um, almost has a similar feel to Nebraska, the album that he put out before this. And it started out kind of kind of as just Bruce playing this on his own and um, Max Weinberg and Roy Benton were the only East street members on the track. Um, they were both in the studio at the time and they just kind of came up with like the, the synth line in the background and kind of like the sparse drum beat to it. And it was actually recorded at the same studio that gave power station its name, um, the power station, but... Um, Wait, I thought they were named after uh, electric No, power no, station. but actually, since you mentioned it, um, Kraftwerk were mentioned, were named after a power station also. Because Kraftwerk means wow, power station. station in German. But anyway... <laughs> um, um, the video for this was directed by John Sales, who's kind of a famous director. Um, did Wan, um, eight men out. but um, in the video, Bruce is a mechanic and an attractive woman drops off at a sh- um, drops off a classic Thunderbird at his shop and um, he offers to drop it off at her house when he's done, but she refuses but he really wants to anyway. So he does. And he pulls up to her house, notices the lights are on, almost rings the doorbell to talk to her. But then he hesitates, just drops the keys off and walks away. Um, Kind of going along with the theme of the song where it's just basically Bruce kind of, um, yeah, 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 basically horny Bruce. Bruce. (laughs) Yeah. but it was, I mean, shot really well, kind of um kind of a higher quality video than what appeared on MTV at the time. So it got a lot of attention from that and actually won the Video Music Award for Best Male Video. So um but kind of an enduring hit. A lot of this was Bruce's commercial peak, so a lot of the songs from born in the usa still get played on the radio a lot and this is one of them so yeah it took me a long time to really like this song but i i dig this song now i didn't really care for it at the time but there's nothing really in a 13 year old's sensibility that would have you know that song would have appealed to so um but i i yeah I like yeah song, i do too actually yeah it's, it's pretty good yeah And I can't say that for every Born in the USA song, but I I will say that for this one. See, But let's move on to five here, which is DeBarge with Rhythm of the Night. I thought this song was from Short Circuit, but that's actually Who's Johnny by L. (laughs) DeBarge. So I screwed up there, but it was actually in The Last Dragon. So if you have a battle between The Last Dragon and Short Circuit over which is the best or worst movie, um, it will probably be a pretty good battle. But, um, you know, it was a typical DeBarge song. DeBarge sounded very upbeat and all that in their funk. And uh, they had a much harder, you know, had a harder edge and a harder life. We had that in another podcast earlier. They had a lot of problems. But uh, I don't want to talk about that. I do want to talk about how this song basically launched the career of songwriter Diane. Really? And for this reason alone, it should be shot into the heart of the sun. I looked up. This is actually probably the best song that Diane Warden Warren I keep trying to say Warden it's Diane Warren um, ever had. I mean I, I'm not going to list her discography but it's just if you want to have a discography of terrible soft rock and or um, hard rock bands that were trying to be commercially successful she's on that list so including some of the Chicago songs we were talking about and peter satara solo song so um yeah so this is actually pretty up tempo upbeat but uh it helped Diane Warren <laughs> have a career so fuck it so that leads us to number four which is one more night by phil collins and this was a this was a former number one hit um it was on top of the charts in march and was up there for two weeks but Um, It was the first single from No Jacket Required, which was a huge album for Collins. He was kind of all over the charts in 85. And this is a ballad, and um, it was more or less improvised by the spot, or improvised on the spot by Collins. Um, He was messing around with his drum machine in the studio and came up with a beat and just started... I was spontaneously chanting one night, one more night over and over and over. And he actually used the same method to come up with a studio. So um, kind of a window into um, the Phil Collins writing process, but, yeah. <laughs> um, but um, not really too much of a fan of this. I mean, kind of a typical Phil Collins ballad, Um there were other Phil Collins songs from this type here that were better, I thought. So I'm going to break ranks with you on that. I actually do like this song. I think it's a cool ballad. And <clears throat> this has one of the primary examples of 80s sax on it at the very end of the song. Yeah, yeah, you're right about that. It yeah. leads out of the song, which i always thought was a cool way to end it. So I think Bill Jagger required Phil Collins. You know, By the end of 85 had radio stations having no Phil Collins weekends and stuff like that. <laughs> um, I think a lot of people would hate to admit that most of those songs off No Jackal Required are actually pretty good. I don't think anybody yeah. knows yeah. that like, from a creative point of view, because Phil Collins isn't necessarily very respected uh, creatively, but I'm not saying they're all good, but most of them are pretty. Definitely better than what he came up with at the end of the end of the eighties, I think. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no doubt about it. Yeah. So um you know, I don't I used to have that album. I don't think I have it anymore. But um it was it was it was fine. He, although it, it did get a little old when he was on the charts for sure. So Right. Let's see, but let's move on to three, which we kind of spoiled this a little bit earlier, but um the Commodore is with Night Shift. Yep, and apart from the fact that this is the song I remember most from that lock-in I was talking about at the beginning, um, I heard this song a lot, and it kind of won me over to this song, because Night Shift wasn't a song that was necessarily going to permeate the ears of a 13-year-old you know, boy, basically. I mean, and Marvin Gaye was not somebody who was on my radar at the time I knew who he was. I knew he had been tragically killed by his dad um, the year before. Um, But Marvin Gaye's only hit in my experience of music was sexual healing. And that was barely, I mean, that was like right at the beginning when I started listening to pop radio on my own. Um, So I didn't, other than maybe I heard it through the grapevine, I really wasn't very knowledgeable about Marvin Gaye. And it's not that this song makes you knowledgeable about him, but the feeling with which the Commodores recorded it made you, it was moving, I thought, even at that age. Mm-hmm. I it was... And it won me over, and it kind of became my favorite song there for a little bit, uh, apart from Power Station. But <laughs> um, And it's, um, you know, it was very heartfelt, and I don't know how much you know, we talked about Lionel Ritchie, who's in the Commodores, of course, not really doing much with Marvin Gaye. I don't recall the Commodores before or after Lionel Ritchie having any kind of, doing any recording with him. They may have known him um, just by being, you know, a big band on their own right, but um, but you can it feels unlike Diana Ross's was different because hers was almost like a song to a friend. Mm-hmm. The Commodores was almost like almost from a fan standpoint, like a tribute to somebody they looked up to and admired, and um, you know, and Jackie Wilson is also uh, memorialized in the song too. He had died um, from uh, you know less less lurid reasons um at that point too so it's a dual tribute it's a tribute to marvin Gaye and jackie Wilson. so uh, but it's very moving song um kind of like a it has a haunting quality to it and not like in a bad way like in the same way that when will i see you again by the three degrees does like that song has that really cool haunting like haunting in a good way quality to it and yeah it has that too
1: um
0: always been one of my favorites and it also joins the many the long list of R&B groups who had big hits after their best-known singer left. So this is right. Lionel Richie had been gone from the Commodores for four years by this point. So this joins Love Machine by the Miracles who recorded that after Smokey Robinson. Um, The Impressions Finally Got Myself Together, which is an awesome song uh, recorded after, um, after Curtis Mayfield left. And then The Supreme Stone Love. There's a bunch of examples of groups that had big hits after their best or the best known singer left so but i have a question for you on this
1: uh-huh.
0: I, I put this out there on twitter just one day randomly uh, this song is about marvin you know partly about marvin Gaye. and who do you think is the best all-time motown solo lead singer <clears throat> marvin Gaye, stevie wonder or Smokey robinson uh i i, I mean they're all I mean, they're all great, but I'd, I'd probably go with Gay for that. I think I would, too, based on the strength of his albums in the, in the 70s. He made some great albums in the 70s.
1: Mm-hmm. you
0: know, and, and great hits, too. And so did Stevie Wonder. Um, but that's a great argument, because you really, especially between Wonder and Gay, you really can't go wrong one way or the other. So Right. Anyway, number two... Uh, We've already talked about her, too. It's Crazy for You by Madonna. Let's see. And this was a future number one hit. And it was from the soundtrack of the high school wrestling movie Vision Quest. Yes. The greatest high school wrestling movie ever made. (laughs) Yes. And it was co-written by John Bettis and John Lind. Um, Bettis had a long association with the Carpenters. Um, He was in the band that was... the. Precursor, of the Carpenters called Spectrum. And now that you mention it, I can totally see the song being recorded by the Carpenters. Yes, yes. And he ended up writing "Top of the World," um, "Goodbye to Love," and "Yesterday Once More" for them. And he also co-wrote "Human Nature" for Michael Jackson and um, "Slowhand" for the Pointer Sisters. And he also wrote the the Growing Pains theme. um, And Lind, who was the co-writer here, mainly worked in R&B and he collaborated a lot with um, Earth, Wind and Fire and Boogie Wonderland was one of his songs. But the two of them were teamed up by the producers of this film. And at the time, they didn't know that the song was intended for Madonna. And when they did find out, they had major doubts on whether she'd be able to pull it off. Um, at the time when they were writing this, um, she just had borderline out, and I mean that was probably the closest she had, closest song she had to a ballad at the time. Um, most of her other songs were kind of like up tempo dance songs, so they didn't think that she'd be able to do it. Um, but. Um, she did a pretty good job of pulling it off, and yeah, she so. she recorded her vocal for the song in a single take, and um, Warner Brothers, which was her label, um, didn't really want the song to be released as a single because they thought that it would hurt the sales of Like a Virgin, which it didn't really, I mean, oh, we, we mentioned Material Girl was also on the chart, so... I mean, Madonna was huge, so basically anything Madonna put out would have been huge at this time period. But um, ended up earning her her very first Grammy nomination for um, Best Female Pop Performance, but she ultimately ended up losing to Whitney Houston. And um, the video for this is a typical movie video, um Madonna's performing the song song in the club, and it's kind of mixed with clips of Matthew Modine training in Vision Quest. And um, one note I have to add for this is that it was used as bumper music for um, the George Michael sports machine. And oh, yeah, it was, wasn't it, at the end of that show? It, it was, and... Um, George Michael, for people who aren't familiar with a sports machine, was not the George Michael from Wham. He was just a yeah, sportscaster. Awesome. Awesome. So, yeah. But enough about that. Let's talk about high school wrestling. <laughs> okay. The movie Vision Quest, but um, I I was I was actually at one point approached to become a high school wrestler when I was a freshman. So was. Because because I hadn't really grown at the time, and they needed like somebody for like the smallest weight class, and somebody from the wrestling team approached me, and turned out that I was like five pounds over like whatever the weight limit was, so it didn't happen. But yeah, I had <laughs> zero desire to try. I, I knew even at that age what wrestlers went through to try to make weight. I wanted to know part of that, probably because I would seen Vision Quest. Yeah, like, I don't want to be throwing up that I don't want to go against shoot yeah yeah that was the, that was the bad guy so the, <laughs> not bad guy I mean the wrestler he had to be like I can never be right so yeah but okay that's enough wrestling but we are up to number one so here we go USA for Africa we are the world yeah Get any bigger than this um i think we know by now that the song was well intended obviously it was to raise money to deal with the famine that was ongoing in africa and ethiopia and a few other african countries at the time uh, but i think we all know it's also widely viewed as a pretty lousy song uh, which i don't know what what you're gonna get out of a big group effort like that it's probably a little bit much to expect it to be some artistic masterpiece when you've got you know, well over fifty people participating in it,
1: mm-hmm. even though
0: they're big names. Quincy Jones produced it, and all that. But, um, and the other thing about the song, looking back on it, and this term didn't exist back in nineteen eighty five. But it, it's also kind of a lesson in virtue signaling to some degree. Now, at that age, I was aware this song, first of all, was inspired by. The British artist's effort in uh, Band-Aid with Do They Know It's Christmas, which was uh, Bob Geldof uh, inspired and released a few months before this for Christmas time, obviously, and it was a big hit. And at the time, in my mind, it felt like, okay, we're American, we're copycatting their idea. So that was kind of my, my only cynical thought on it about it at the time. Looking back on it, You know it is a really big example of virtue signaling in some ways in the best respect and also as a criticism of virtue of the concept of virtue signaling and um it's virtue signaling obviously because it's like hey they did something for africa so we better look like we're doing something for africa and that's a very look at it but there is an element of truth to it but i guess where i take this from there is that the whole concept of virtue signaling could be pretty nasty too because i don't think anybody was being insincere And I feel like virtue signaling as a concept is an easy way for somebody to just be an asshole. I mean, maybe there is, maybe there was an element of, well, we better do our part. We better show that we care about Africa, but it's still an accomplishment and it's still a sincere effort on their part to make a difference. So I think that's where you run into trouble with people who get upset about virtue signaling and stuff like that. I mean, it's still, you know, I, I don't feel like there's anything insincere about their effort. It's just that it came after somebody else's effort. So it came off as a little bit copycat. But but forget all that anyway, because the thing that we should celebrate about this song is the bizarro mix of artists that we get on it. We get Kenny Rogers singing with Al Jarreau. We get a memorable scream fest between Bruce Springsteen and James Ingram. We were trying to you know, it reminds me of that Beavis and Butt video they watched where they thought the guy was taking a shit.
1: <laughs> They're both trying
0: to outcream each other into taking a shit. Um, you get Waylon Jennings and Latoya Jackson in the same chorus, so yeah. Um, you know, everybody who was anybody wanted to be in this, and um, and most of them worked. And uh, you know, the song itself is pretty forgettable. It's sort of become a punchline uh, to some degree, but. And the thing is, you know, again, in in the half of this that's virtue signaling, it's amazing how everybody kind of forgot about Africa and its problems not very long after this. I mean, there was Live Aid uh, later on in 85, but yeah, by the end of 86 or so, you know, most of these artists had moved on, as the world does sometimes with these charity efforts. But um, even though the problems still existed in Africa, but Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of the money that they raised ended up like in the wrong hands too. It did, and you know, I didn't really <laughs> delve into that in terms of my research, but um, so, but definitely in of its eighty-five time and place moment, um, when it came out, it was a big deal. I remember watching the debut of it, and you know, it was like back then when videos debuted, it was a big deal, and MTV did a good job of promoting them, and um everybody watched the debut of this. It was a big deal. And this went up to number one in a hurry um, in 85. So, I mean, it did lead to live aid, the concert that came uh, in July of 85. And, and it did lead to other benefit songs, you know, like sun city came out later on in 85 and all that. So um, there there was, there was like a metal version of this too. There was sport aid, (laughs) as you mentioned, there are a lot of aids, you know, without making a pun, there was, Um, a lot of efforts at, um, charity efforts in the later, starting with this in the, you know, mid to late eighties. So, um, but obviously a very famous song and, um, you know, and like I said, Bruce Springsteen almost literally takes a dump in it, (laughs) 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 but that wraps things up for this week, Matt, you got the pick for next week, where are we headed? We're going back 50 years um, to April 18th, 1970 for yeah. the, the Hot 100. And it's kind of like this one where there is a lot of iconic songs on it. So should be should be a good chart to look back on. Cool. All right. Well, that'll do it for this week. Uh, that's With a Bullet. Thanks for listening. Matt, see us out. Um, well, see you in 1970, everybody. Yeah, the Easter Bunny is, well, he's, he's tired. He's done for the year. He's done at work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, all right, that's it. Thanks a lot. Yep.
1: Bye, everyone.